If you've been with us throughout the, the month of December, those of you who have been, you know that we've been in a series in which we have been noting that all of the warmth and all of the, uh, the tenderness and the sentiment as, of Christmas, as we have come to know Christmas and as we normally celebrate it, uh, really is very different from the mood of the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. People were genuinely afraid at the birth of Christ. His birth didn't really bring peace to anyone. In fact, it brought fear to most people. All of Israel was disturbed because of Jesus' birth. Children were slaughtered because King Herod, the political power at that time, was scared to death that Jesus was going to steal his power. And so he ordered that all of the babies in Bethlehem from two years of age and younger, he ordered that they be massacred. The shepherds to whom the angel announced his birth were also terrified. We saw that last week, those of you who've been with us. His mother Mary almost lost her fiancé, Joseph, when she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. How many of you would have believed that story of a teenage girl? And I think you'll even see in the passage that we're going to read in just a moment that Joseph was even afraid to marry But none of that is where I really want to go tonight. What I want to do tonight is I want to give you two thoughts that I think you can mull over in your mind tomorrow, maybe tonight and tomorrow, as you celebrate the birth of Christ with family and with friends, whoever it is that you're going to celebrate it with. I just want to give you two things that you can think about. I think they're pretty simple concepts, and yet uh, I think if you really meditate on these, it's something that, uh, uh, something, frankly, that you could meditate on all year long and never get to the bottom of. But let me just give you a couple of things to think about. First, let me read the passage that I'm going to speak from tonight. It's found in Matthew chapter 1. It's from verse 20. You don't have to turn uh, in a Bible or anything. We'll put it up here on the screen. Text says this. It says, but after he, Joseph, had considered this, he was considering not marrying Mary. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. So there we have the fear again at the birth of Jesus. Don't be afraid. To take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you notice in this passage and in the other narratives of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, there is a lot of fuss about Jesus' name. Now, if you're a parent, I suspect that you named all of your own children. Maybe you got a name book. Maybe you researched popular names on the Internet. I don't know. Maybe there was someone from your family history that you wanted to name your child after, but even that was your choice. You got to name your child whatever you wanted to name your child. But not so with this child. Jesus' name was given to Mary and to Joseph. They didn't didn't get to choose it. And there is significance in that. And as a result of that, there, there are two things that we can learn about Jesus just strictly from his name. The first is... And I want you to get this. I want you to mull, over, mull this over tonight, tomorrow. Just think about this. The first is that Jesus is unmanageable. That he's unmanageable. And, and here's what I mean by that. In the Bible, if you named something, it meant that you assumed 
authority over or management over that which you named. Now, it didn't mean that you owned it. It just meant that you had authority over it. In fact, this is exactly why parents name children today. Who else would name a child but the child's parents? You don't own the child. When you name the child, you don't own the child, but you are a manager uh, over the child. And it's a parent's job to manage the child, to see what this child is good at, to help this child into whatever he or she should be, to find their talents, to find their capacities, to develop them, to bring them to fullness as a human being. That's, that's a parent's job. But these two parents are the first two parents in history not to be allowed to name their own child. Why? Why? It's because Jesus claims to be the owner. You can't name Jesus because he names you. You can't manage Jesus because he claims to be king over your life and he manages, he manages you. And when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he manages you. you. You don't manage him. Now, you need to understand that there are people that try to manage Jesus all the time. Uh, his disciples tried to manage him. One time he spoke to his disciples about his coming death, and uh, one of his disciples said, no, his disciple's name was Peter, and he said, no, 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 that, no way. You're not gonna, we're not going to let you go uh, to uh, Jerusalem and die. We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus' response to Peter was, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, that's a cold response. I mean, that is not like something very warm and tender. It was just, get thee behind me, Satan. After his resurrection... The disciples wanted to make him the king. They wanted him to restore the kingdom to Israel. And he told them, you know, he said, I, I can't tell you when the kingdom is going to come back to Israel. It's, not, it's really not my business. I can't, I can't tell you that. That's for the Father to know. Not, not for me and not for you. Because I can't speak to you about that. Throughout his life, his enemies tried to manage him. They tried to, they tried to tell him that no self-respecting Messiah would hang out with the kind of people that Jesus spent time with, the down and outers. No self-respecting Messiah would do that. And because he did spend time with those kind of people, his enemies called him a drunkard, they called him a glutton, but Jesus wasn't either one of those things. And people in the church try to manage Jesus all the time. The political conservatives in the church want to make Jesus conservative, and the political liberals in the church want to make Jesus liberal, and yet he claims to be neither. And people outside the church want to manage him. They, they, tell, you, they tell him, you know, we'll allow you to be a good teacher, but you can't be Lord. Um, we'll allow you to be a prophet, uh, but you can't be the king of the world. And Jesus claims he's the creator and the king of the world. He claims to be God. <laughs> Prosperity preachers, they, they always want to make Jesus manageable by telling you that there is some formula that if you will follow this particular formula, you can get Jesus to do whatever you want him to do in terms of health and wealth. And that usually starts with a sizable donation to their church. And I want to just say, I would love for you guys, anybody that wants to, feel free to make a sizable donation to City Church, even tonight if you'd like to, and you can address that to 2510 Waterbridge Way, Evansville, Indiana. However, I make no promise that Jesus is going to do anything for you. No promise at all. You can't manage Jesus. But you can donate to City Church. That's a whole other thing. We'll, we won't spend any time on it. 
Everybody, everybody, I want to, you want to. We all want to make Jesus manageable. But the fact that humans weren't allowed to name Jesus declares that he is unmanageable. There's something wild. There's something unpredictable about Jesus. And when he comes into your life, you never know what he's going to do. When you bring him into your life, you're bringing something into your life that is out of control, that will do things that you can't imagine. Hey, I got to tell you something. I was sitting in Dallas, Texas about four years ago, four Christmases ago, and I had no idea that I was going to move to Evansville, Indiana, get fired from a church in eight months, and be involved in a church plant all in the span of a year. You just don't think those kind of things are going to happen. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did in the last four years of my life. Here's the thing. If you're looking for security and safety, it is best not to invite Jesus into your life. To become a Christian is to listen to the call away from security. Because there is a wildness and an unpredictability to Jesus. Sometimes people will say, I don't know, maybe you've said it, maybe you've heard other people say it. Look, I'm afraid that if I give Jesus my life, uh, he's going to ask me to do things I don't want to do. And I can tell you, I can promise you that he will, he will do exactly that. He will ask you to do things that you don't want to do and that you're completely uncomfortable with. I can promise you that. Someone once compared inviting Jesus into your life to hiring a contractor to come over to your house and fix it because your roof leaks and because, you know, the doors stick in various places. And, and in the beginning, he does. He, you know, he starts to plug up the leaks and he starts to fix the doors. But then he begins to knock out walls. And then you, you come home one day and you find out that three whole rooms in your house are gone. And, and you come home another day and there's scaffolding all over the back of the house. And you look around to turn on the light and there's no switch there. It's all out of control. And you suddenly realize that all you wanted him to do was turn, your, turn you into a nice, secure little cottage. And he's turning you into a palace fit for a king. And that's what Jesus meant when he said one day, you have to lose yourself. To find yourself. You want to find yourself? Give yourself to me. Give control to me. Just give it all. Surrender it all to me. And you'll find yourself. But you won't find yourself until you do that. Jesus is completely unmanageable. He's not a pussycat. He's a lion. And he is not tame. He is good. But he is not tame. That's who was born in the, in the manger that night. And that's one of the things that we learn about Jesus, just from his name, is that he's absolutely unmanageable. And it's best that you know that before you ever invite him into your life. Here's the second thing, and I'll, this will be the last thing. The other thing I want to show you from this account of the naming of Jesus is that the name Jesus, the name Jesus itself personifies magnificence in the ordinary. It personifies magnificence in the ordinary, and here's what I mean. The name Jesus is a translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. Back in the Old Testament, there was this guy, his name was Joshua. He was a lieutenant to Moses. And originally, originally Joshua's name was Hosea, which means salvation, 
or it means deliverance, okay? But when he began to work for Moses, Moses changed his name, and he changed his name to Yeshua, Yeshua, which is Joshua. But what it means is not just salvation. His name means salvation is from the Lord. Okay. So before his name changed, his name, his name was just salvation. But then once he begins to work for Moses, Moses knows something about this whole salvation thing. This whole salvation thing. And he says, I want to change your name. It's not just going to be salvation. It's going to be, it's going to be salvation is from the Lord. Now, on the one hand, what's amazing about this name is it was perhaps one of the most common Hebrew names possible. To put it in American terms, Jesus was not named something like Auden Rothschild III. It wasn't anything like that. His name was, his name was John or Tom or Larry. In other words, just something very ordinary. It was his way of identifying with the ordinary. Jesus was a very common name. And not only was his name common, but he lived in the most ordinary of families. He was raised in the most ordinary of venues. He was a common man with a common trade, a common job, lived among common people. In every way, he looked unextraordinary. He was simple. He was uneducated. He was unsophisticated. He was untraveled. Tomorrow morning, I get on a plane, and I'm going to fly to join my family down in Dallas. And in that one flight, I will travel further than Jesus ever traveled in his entire life. He was ordinary. That's my point. He was ordinary. Which is a part of what the prophecy meant when it said in this passage that his name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In other words, he's, he's God in the ordinary. Uh, in the midst of this very, very common, unextraordinary person is clothed God himself. And so the name Jesus, it, it was perfect for him. Salvation is of the Lord. That's his name, Yeshua. Salvation is from the Lord. And if you think about it, that's the meaning of the whole Bible. That's the whole gospel. Complete. You, you see, the, the gospel is not a self improvement program. It's not like something that you do for yourself. Salvation isn't something that if you just work on it and improve yourself some, that then you can be saved. That's, that's not what it means. You don't make yourself a Christian. You, you can't make yourself right with God. Salvation is not of you, it's not about how good you are. It's salvation is of the Lord. That's why he was named Yeshua. Salvation is from the Lord. You see, his name conveys everything. So here in this night, in this moment, he, the extraordinary comes clothed in the unextraordinary. And he just kind of slips into the world in a very common, ordinary way. Yeah, there is the big spotlight that hits the shepherds, and, you know, they're terrified by the whole thing. But outside of that, I mean, it was just shepherds. It wasn't like it came to CNN or anything. It just came to these shepherds out in the fields. And so, you know, like it wasn't a big to-do over his birth. Just very ordinary. And sometimes you'll hear people, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll tell these stories that, you know, like when they invited Jesus into their life, when they came to believe in Jesus, you'll hear them tell these 
stories of dramatic changes that happened immediately in their lives when they became a Christian. And I, I, I believe God can do that. I believe God does that kind of thing sometimes. But I don't think that's normal. I don't think that's normative. In other words, I don't think that's how Jesus normally works in a person's life. I don't think that's normally how he moves them from darkness into light. It, it's, it's, it's usually much less fantastic than that. It's usually a lot more subtle, a lot more ordinary, much like the way that he slipped into the world. It's kind of like an acorn that's planted, which eventually turns into a giant oak tree, but it happens over a long period of time, right? Usually God doesn't come into a person's life with a lot of dramatic fanfare. It usually looks pretty normal, but as time goes by, he changes you, slowly but surely. Much like the way that he slipped into the world that first Christmas day, without much fanfare, without much acclaim or applause from the world. Nobody famous was expecting him. Nobody famous was looking for him. Oh, there had been prophecies about his birth that went back hundreds of years. By the way, no other religious leader in the world has ever had his birth prophecy. Only Jesus. Hundreds of years before he was ever born. And it all came to happen just exactly the way that it was all predicted that it would happen. But it wasn't on TV. The political powers that be that were at that time were not expecting it. They weren't looking for it. They weren't excited about it. Nobody was excited about it. And yet he started a revolution that has lasted over 2,000 years and that the whole world stopped down tonight and tomorrow to celebrate. I'd just like to challenge you. Take a few minutes tomorrow, why don't you? Just a few. And I just challenge you to ask yourself, how have I tried to manage Jesus over the last year in my own life? And perhaps you've turned that into a resolution for 2015 that you're going to stop trying to manage Jesus. Like there's these expectations that you have that Jesus is going to work in this way, in my little box He's going to do this. He should be doing this for me. He ought to be doing this. Just know this, that you can't manage Jesus. So you might just take a few minutes tomorrow and ask yourself, how have I been trying to manage Jesus in the last year? And perhaps you'll find that some of your disappointment with Jesus comes from the fact that you've been trying to manage him instead of letting him manage you. <laughs> if you've never... I don't know, maybe you're here tonight with family and friends, and this is just like part of the tradition. You know, the whole family goes, so you can't really stay at home. You've got to just come to this service, and you're just looking at your clock right now thinking, when's he going to stop talking? I'll tell you, it's coming very, very, very soon. Um, but if you've never, you never believed on Jesus, never invited him into your life, I just ask you, why don't you do that tonight or tomorrow? Don't, don't expect a lot of fanfare if you do that. Don't expect fireworks when you receive Christ. 
Don't expect that there's going to be immediate change tomorrow. You're not going to wake up and feel any different if you do that tonight. You know, many years ago, I knelt down next to my bed in my apartment in Dallas, Texas, and I had been hearing people talk about the gospel. I didn't believe in it. I didn't believe in Jesus or anything like that. I came to this moment, finally said, you know what? I think there is something to this. And so I knelt down next to my bed, and I, I invited Jesus into my life, and I said, listen, I promise you that I'm never going to sin again. I will never sin again. And I want you to know that I have kept that promise. I have never sinned once since then. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You. But... I, the next morning I woke up and I felt incredibly ordinary. Like nothing fancy, nothing special. But I can tell you, it's been almost 30 years since that moment. And my life has changed dramatically over that 30 years. Kind of like, a, kinda like a, an acorn that was planted in my soul all those years ago that's I didn't notice any one moment along the way, but it's become a little more like a big oak tree in my soul. Not as big as it will be, but it's become more like an oak tree in my soul. But it hasn't happened overnight, and it hasn't happened without a lot of effort and a lot of failure and a lot of help from other people over the years. Know this, that a year from now, a decade from now, the little kids, a hundred years from now, you won't look like anything that you look like right now if you were to make that decision tonight, tomorrow, in the days ahead. Jesus' name means that he is unmanageable. And his name personifies magnificence in the ordinary would you join me for a word of prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you tonight and uh, we recognize that as we do, we, uh, you know, we come on the shoulders of many, many people throughout many, many years that have taught, proclaimed um, your name. And we realize that uh, what started 2,000 years ago as just a, you know, a little baby in a manger uh, today is celebrated all over the world. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the fact that we do sometimes try to manage you. Uh, we affirm tonight that your name means that you're unmanageable. And we want to affirm tonight as well That your name means that it personifies magnificence in the ordinary. So you can change people. You can turn very ordinary people into amazing works of your creative spirit. So Lord, for all of us tonight, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would speak to us. For those who are here tonight, that maybe this is the first time they've ever heard about you, or maybe they've heard, but... It's never made sense to them before. I pray that maybe tonight, like, like I did 30 years ago, that they might kneel down next to their bed and, and make you their Savior. We worship you as the King, the Creator of the universe, the Lord of our lives. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship and pray. Amen.